Hello, Cachimbonas! I'm so excited to be bringing you episode 11 of season 5 of Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that audio archives state repression and the fierce migrant resistance happening in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. As a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants, Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans. On this episode, I was so, so excited to invite Nicaraguan-American author Prisca Dorcas Mojica Rodriguez to talk about her new book. And we discussed the journey towards her obtaining her first book deal for brown girls with sharp edges and tender hearts. And we discussed why respectability politics ultimately doesn't serve people of color. We talked about Prisca's journey through imposter syndrome to eventually landing a major book deal and why brown girls need each other. I always love talking to Prisca. She's brilliant. She's an amazing writer. Highly recommend the book and really valued this time being able to sit down with Briska and talk about her work as an author and the culmination of her writing for the past few years. So I hope that you all enjoy this episode. If you want to support the podcast, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash Radio Cachimbona. For $3 a month, you get a monthly shout out. If you are able to contribute more between $5 and $10 a month, then you get early access to episodes like these and exclusive access to the season five lit reviews and all the back catalog of past lit reviews, which are fierce book club style chats that I have with women of color over timely texts. There's something for everyone in the lit review and I highly, highly recommend becoming a patron if you can. Another way to support the podcast non-monetarily, because I know that these economic times are rough. Another way to support is through leaving an Apple podcast rating and review. It really helps with visibility. It helps more people see the podcast and helps eventually the podcast obtain a ranking on the top podcast list for law and politics. Spotify also recently unveiled a rating and review feature on the app. So please, if you listen there, leave a five-star review. And also you can follow at Radio Cachimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to share why you love the podcast there. You can also follow at Eva Borja AZ to follow my writings at Balls and Strikes. As I've announced on the podcast already, I have transitioned formally into legal journalism and I'm a staff writer for Balls and Strikes, where I focus on the Supreme Court and just the judiciary at large from a critical bullshit-free perspective. So go there and that's where you can find all of my articles that I post and uh yes i think that this is it i hope that you all enjoy this episode love you all so much Hello, Cachimbonas. I am very excited today to have a very special guest, Prisca Dorcas Mojica Rodriguez, back on the podcast to talk about <laughs> her most recent book, her first book, For Brown Girls with Sharp Edges and Tender Hearts, A Love Letter to Women of Color. But before we start, I just wanted to say, Prisca, thank you so much for coming back onto the podcast. I know that you're in a very busy season, kind of touring for your book. So thanks so much for coming onto the podcast and making time to talk about the book and your writing process. Of course, I'm like a set of like Cerebrona back in the day fan. I'm right day here. One. I was day exactly, one. exactly. <laughs> so I was excited to even get you to be interested in it because I think you're brilliant and I'm like oh yeah <laughs> oh thank you thank you so could you share with us your process for getting a literary agent and securing a book deal I mean this is huge and I think not something that a first gen Latina necessarily envisions herself doing no so 
Like, when did it start to feel real for you? Oh, wow. Okay. Where do I start? It didn't start to feel real till like September 7th, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, it goes really? in stages. Like last month? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. It goes in stages. Came out? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Even like, um, I never thought to write a book. That wasn't like, I remember like, this, there was this girl in my class, like maybe 10th or 11th grade. I took like criminal justice for three years in high school. And so there was this girl, her name is Jacqueline Fernandez. And she was like, you know, she passed as white and like mm. moved through the world as a white Latina. And I remember her being like, one day I want to write a book. And I just remember just like staring at her and being like, who says that? <laughs> and she was like a, a penguin random house book. And I was like, wow. And then I, and I had a bunch of books because I'm a reader. So I was like, what does that mean? I look, I was like, oh, those are like publishers. <laughs> like, that's a big name. I was like, oh, yeah. my God, look at this girl just dreaming out here. <laughs> like I was it was just it never would have occurred to me. It never it just wasn't the goal. And in fact, growing up, my family would tell my sister, my little baby sister is adopted. And my family would say, you have to write a book one day about your story to her all the time. <laughs> so it was in the ether. Like, around me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't like a thing that I was like doing. And when I started writing, I wasn't like a writer. Like I wasn't, I think there's like a path. Like I could tell you, I knew somebody growing up when I was in high school, she journaled all the time. She like wrote poems. She like won awards in our high school for things that she like submitted. And I was like, okay, that's a writer. Mm. Did I mirror that path? No, I don't journal right. for anything in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I wasn't encouraged to be that kind of person. I liked yeah. reading. I read everything. I inhaled. It, it was like the Matilda movie when she goes to the library and reads all the children's books and then goes Aww. to the adult section. That was me. <laughs> I got a rolly backpack I would take like in fourth grade. <laughs> Not the rolly backpack. Oh my yeah. God. I, those two. I was reminiscing about that recently because I was like, dude, it is so sad that our society shamed those because yeah. they make so much more sense. So much yeah. better for your back. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. I I had it was a, a jasmine rolling backpack, like oh my God. Made, <laughs> made of like uh you know plastic <laughs> or vinyl. Or yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I would I would check out the limit on my public library was a hundred books, so I would check out a hundred books at a time. Oh my god! Yeah, I'm Dang. telling you. <laughs> so I read a lot. I just yeah. didn't think that I would ever be a person. I just like stories. They were like escapism for me from my house from like the strictness of all of my conservative Christian upbringing like I could imagine myself somewhere else like I was a card holding yeah. member of the babysitters club oh my god yes <laughs> <laughs> like I was that kid yeah. <laughs> so yeah <laughs> oh, well I was gonna say like you say you don't journal ever but you know I feel like a lot of your articles could be kind of like journal entries in terms of like the tenderness and vulnerability with which you write from and you're always talking about personal experiences and like in your book you talk about how you are in the vein of critical race theory counter narrative storytelling and so the way that you teach is through telling your own personal experiences and a lot of times you're sharing your personal trauma and a lot of those articles went viral so why was it that uh, not at that point that you said oh I'm a writer because it was so hard to do it and when I got started so the Huffington Post reached out in 2015 because of a caption I had written on LR and uh they oh, were wow. like I know <laughs> I was still not like a writer. And if you go back, if you're an OG of my writings, you'll go. I think my first piece was called Spicy in the Huffington Post. Mm. And it was just like seven lines of just like random thoughts <laughs> <laughs> around the word. Like oh, I and my yeah. editor, <laughs> my editor there, uh, Tanisha Ramirez, she would be like for six months, she kept saying like, you're a writer, you're a writer. And I was like, pump the brakes like chill <laughs> I'm just talking shit and people happen to read it <laughs> but I didn't even take ownership of the title for years of me doing this I was just like I don't know why people are reading it <laughs> I 
I am struggling, I am drowning, and I and I'm writing for my life at this point. And that is mm. all that's happening. And it was resonating, but I was like, you know, like pretty quickly, like by 2016, I was full-time traveling and writing. And I started writing in 2015. It it like happened overnight. And I was holding on for dear life. And I was like, I don't know when this is going to stop, but I'm going to spend every check I get because I don't know when I will have this much money in my life. (laughs) And I did. (laughs) Uh, Senior shoe collection. Uh, Yeah, it's bad. It's horrible (laughs) because I didn't have a lot of inspiring. I know because I I was like, dude, like actually investing in shoes like that, it's kind of like investing you know not not exactly but like a little bit in that it it, is retain like then really nice stuff does retain its value yeah at this point the shoe there's a shoe repair person here that I just take I just like go fix shoes now and like it's expensive but like I'm like I'm gonna have these for life so resold these heels (laughs) (laughs) yeah you don't tell me the Taurus that it's a good idea to (laughs) get nice shoes (laughs) yeah yeah and but it I I think the whole time everything has happened, I've been like, it's been like a roller coaster and I've just been holding on for dear life. And like, right, like I started writing 2015. I never wrote before that. And it was public. Like I didn't draft. I didn't have it. Things that I wrote down on the notebook and then went and wrote. Mm-hmm. I would do this, like close my eyes and just write until I couldn't. And then I would send it, never read it again. <laughs> Swear to God. <laughs> Well, reading and, your own work is actually really painful, but you had to have done that for this book. Was that uh, hard for you? Really, really, really <laughs> hard. <laughs> and I refuse to read my book now unless I'm doing a reading or something. I'm just like, that I have read sense. it so yeah. much. I know exactly where everything that I want to take out is. I know. <laughs> and I just, I just, I've lived with this book and I like, I'm having a tortured relationship with it right now. <laughs> But yeah, 2015, I started writing. 2016, it happened so quickly. I was doing it overnight, like full time. 2017, my agent reached out on Twitter. Wow. And he. That's such a wild story that it happened via Twitter DM because I feel like, (laughs) well, especially like having imposter syndrome, like my first instinct would just be like, this is a spammer. Yeah, it was that instinct. I didn't believe him. I even, we didn't have any mutual friends. Yeah. He's not Puerto Rican. So I found that out okay. later, but oh, okay. he presents as white. Oh. And so I was like, who's this white man calling me yeah. Miss Dorcas? Like, that's not even my middle, like, that's not my last name. <laughs> but I like, but I like works. went with it. Yeah. I yeah. went with it. I visited his office 2018 because I took forever to write my book proposal because book proposals are like counterintuitive. What what is that? What yeah, what is that? Like is it it's, one page? Is no, it no? It's like mine was 35 single space pages. Oh yeah. I had no idea. <laughs> what 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 what's like the first chapter, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, but like then, what is it? You're outlining all of the chapters that you envision in your head. It's like a business plan. Oh. Not only are you outlining your book and what you why you were inspired to write this book and every chapter outlined but you're also going into like, this is what you should invest in me. Look at all my social media numbers. Oh, look yeah, at all the yeah, relationships yeah. that I built. These are all the campuses I've been to all these years. Mm-hmm. Like you're like pitching your success to a publisher so that okay. they're invested and in, can see a return financially. Cause you're just a number. Yeah. Like you could be super passionate in like the why you decided this book needs to exist in the world. Yeah. (laughs) If you don't propose the ways that it will be successful and the data behind that, they're they're not gonna they're not going to pay attention to you. I mean, unless you're a white person, mediocrity is praised. But yeah, uh, (laughs) what was that that book that got five million a five million dollar advance deal? American Dirt. American Dirt. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was in talks with that publisher. For. Really? And yeah, they offered me 15K. Yeah, for my oh, book. Oh, wow. And then yeah. you ended up getting 75K. Yeah, yeah. So see, people need to know their worth. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I, if I had accepted that, it would have been such a slap in the face to have heard the same publisher yeah, give this fucking... And I know, and like industries change, like nonfiction, there's a range of prices. Fiction 
is the range of prices you should expect, like the money, the advance you should get. Okay. Um, YA is a, yeah. Oh. YA is a heavily saturated field, so you can expect a different advance there. Like everything, mm-hmm. every field has different standards. So okay. it's if you're outside my genre, it's hard to compare our numbers because okay. we're not we're not in the same market at all. Yeah. It took me 2017 to 2019 to write the book proposal because it's the longest thing in the history of your life to wow. to try to pitch yourself. It's weird and counterintuitive and I didn't like it. And I thought it was all li- a lie. Like I thought mm. none of this is true. It's so much so that I submitted my book proposal and was applying for nonprofit jobs, trying to disappear from the internet, like simultaneously. <laughs> Yeah, I remember you tried to disappear for like six months. Yeah, yeah, I got a nonprofit job. But then I you like... got the book deal. <laughs> yeah. Oh That's like from a movie. Yeah, it was like in the middle of a staff meeting where they were like re-evaluating. Bitch, my fucking dream, are you kidding me? I would stand up and be like, I'm done, bitches. I got a book deal. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> no, I cried. <laughs> I I got it from my meeting because my agent never calls me like they don't call you like unless you're making the money they just aren't gonna call you (laughs) so I get this phone call from David my agent and I was like so I like got up from my meeting as they're telling us the new structure of our work environment and like the way that I functioned they were trying to make it less hierarchical okay and make it more lateral but still I was at the bottom of one of the (laughs) lateral like I was like literally my name with all the other people in my team were like right down here the lowest (laughs) of the low and I was like I'm gonna take this call yeah I know like get out the room and he's like I sent your proposal out this morning and three of the five, the big five publishers oh have already expressed, expressed interest in having meetings with you. The company, I think they're Beacon Press. The people yeah. who originally published Harry Potter, they were interested in having a full meeting with their staff and me. Oh my God. And he was just like, get ready. This week is going to be hectic. Clear everything in your schedule. And I was like, and so we hung up and I just started crying and I had oh to go home God. from work. <laughs> I was like, oh. <gasps> This isn't real. This isn't real. This isn't real. I'm getting scammed. <laughs> I oh really thought I got, and I went home and got high because I was like, that's like, that's a good way to level yeah. me and get yeah, me out so of anxiety. Relax. Yeah, yeah. Of but course. then this is when I discovered if I'm too anxious, all getting high does is no. take me to the other <laughs> level of anxiety. 100%. 100%. And I discovered it that week, just Aww. like crying, being, telling my husband, like, this is just a con. They're lying to me. Why are they doing to me? And he was just like, he had to, he, I remember him grabbing my shoulders and he was like, you have no money for them to con you from. You spend it all (laughs) on shoes. (laughs) Nobody wants to con you. (laughs) And I was like, okay, okay. (laughs) You're right. I have no money. I, I for real this this is this is real life <laughs> and so, so the really way that it wasn't until now that you were like the book came out and you were like okay this is real yeah because even like as you're in the process my agents like they take meetings while I'm with my editor because they're the ones who are asking like how many are you gonna print um what how and they decide as they're reading your draft Whoa. and and they don't tell you a publication date until they're satisfied with your drafts <laughs> so it'd be um, like const- yeah oh, so wow. like you're constant you could submit the whole thing and they'll never publish it <gasps> yeah terrifying oh that's horrific so and like halfway through How writing mine does that happen do you know did your agent give you insight into that no but I so halfway into writing mine I saw I follow a lot of eating disorder recovery people mm-hmm. and one of these accounts, like she posted like a thing crying and was like, I had to return my advance. I couldn't finish my book. Sometimes we just don't have the capacity to do these things. And I was like, Oh, oh God, you could, you, there, the possibility of not finishing. Like I didn't, it, oh, it didn't no. occur to me until she put it in the room. And I was like, I am not going to finish. <laughs> so the anxiety was high the whole time. And I didn't get a date of, release till the summer right before I finished the manuscript the summer of 2020 because I finished September 2020 okay I got like okay it's September 2021 
it's a fall release. And I was like, okay, they're publishing it. Thank God. (laughs) But even then, I just kept saying, even then, no, yeah, (laughs) people have been reviewing your book. I like people got advanced copies and they've been saying amazing things about it. Not then, because it goes to printing. So once you turn in your final manuscript, it goes through a legal review because the publisher wants to cover their ass for Um. anything that you have said. Um, then it goes through the copy edit process and that takes forever for, I mean, it was like five months. Like that didn't end till March this year. Mm-hmm. I got like the final copy of it on a PDF ah. and they didn't go to print till June. So yeah. a lot of people that blurbed it got PDFs. They didn't get physical oh, copies. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So until I held my book in my hands, which was that September, it didn't feel real at all, at all. I was like, this, this is all imagined. This is all fake. None of this is going to happen. Or if it does happen, they're going to print like 10 copies. Cause we didn't know how many were, they were printing till like July or August of this year. Oh, wow. So they can print 5,000 and that's right. it. Call it a day. Right. You want them to print a lot because then they're expecting it to sell well. Right. So, yeah, none of it. Everything was just kind of like you're auditioning still, even when you have been paid, (laughs) even when you wrote it all. You're kind of waiting for them to say, like, we believe in you. Okay, well, that's a very stressful process and I'm very proud of you. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that with us and like kind of democratizing that, that the knowledge of the writing process for us. And I say that phrase because you start the book by saying that the project is about democratizing knowledge. Why is that something that's important to you? Because I was somebody who I functioned from all the things that were passed down to me, all this like unprocessed trauma, (laughs) colonialism and the ways that we haven't talked about it. Mm -hmm. I just like functioned and I was like a very angry person. And when I figured out that this was so much bigger than just like all the experiences that I had had. Yeah. I was like, how, how is this not available to everybody? Why did it take me getting a Vanderbilt for a master's program for me to have access to any of this information. Right. This is like a crime, which was the reason why I started Latina Rebels. Mm-hmm. I was like, no, make people think, put it in a meme, put it in a GIF, like simplify it. Like people have the potential to do so much more once you give them a starting point. We aren't even giving them a starting point. Right. And the book was the same thing for me. It was like these stories, I've been writing these stories out of like a, a need to name all the things, but they, they genuinely define and give experiences. They validate a lot of that because, so I, Paolo Fieri, mm-hmm. <laughs> Pedagogy of the Oppressed, mm-hmm. is like the Bible for academics. If you're, if you're in academia and a progressive space, because sometimes they're not. Yeah. Um, people will regurgitate Paulo Fieri like it's it's God, while simultaneously not really breaking down any of their theories for <laughs> working class people who might not have access to that space. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so I took it to heart. I was like, if if I want to write a book meant to democratize knowledge then I need to have higher expectations for my readers. Like I need to mm. understand that they have so much inside of them and I need, I just need to activate that. And if it requires me in a way showing a lot of my scars, then I will do that for you to be activated, for you to understand like, no, this isn't just like some buzzword on the internet that people get canceled for. Mm-hmm. This is like impacting me in very intimate ways, whether I know it or not. And I hope that through the stories, people can start to see all that because we don't see it. We don't talk about it. We're encouraged to be the success story. And we don't want to say like what it took to get to those places or what stopped us from getting to those places. Right. I think it's really important to name those truths because first-gen people of color can be taken advantage of by these 
PWIs, like my law school put me on so many like presentations about public interest life. (laughs) Yeah. Like literally. And it's like, I was like too depressed to like go to anything. So I would just be like, in my room, people would be texting me like, oh my God, Yvette, you're on the projector screen. And I'd be like, what the fuck? (laughs) Yeah. And it's just, I feel like we're used as like, look, the system is fair because Yvette, whose mom cleans houses and whose dad drives an Uber, uh, is was able to make it to this elite institution. And that means that actually these systems of admission aren't that fucked up. And it's a if you just try themselves. really hard, yeah. like you can yeah. do it. And it's just it's important to push back on all those narratives because you're all like we're already being utilized as part of that narrative. So if you don't speak out, you're just automatically complicit in it. Yeah. And we participate in other people's confusion when when they start experiencing stuff mm-hmm. because we didn't name it enough. Yes. And so we participate in their confusion and their isolation and their otherness and them dropping out of programs and them everything because we're like, no, we made it. <laughs> Be right. grateful that you're yes. even here. Yes. Yes. I hate that sentiment so much. Um. You So you obviously have a complicated relationship with academia because, as you say, it introduced you to the authors that changed your life and your politics and your perspective, but it was also a space that caused you serious imposter syndrome and made you feel really otherized and really alone. What is your relationship with academia now? Well, they're my primary employers <laughs> still. <laughs> they cut my, my check. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I enjoy, I enjoy the irony of that. I enjoy yes. that I get to be in the guy to get to come in there and tell people like, no, speak up, fuck this place. Right. I think that that's like, the, um, like the dream. Yeah. <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yes. I, because I do think those places can be really great, but they, but they're not. And so how do we, how do I create a career just like poking at it? And my academic institutions haven't acknowledged me until very recently. Mm. Um, Any of the work that I do, any of the, my contribution to Latinx thinking, (laughs) none of that is acknowledged in my academic spaces until again, very recently, because it's like undeniable. And so I still, I still, (laughs) I still have a lot of conflict with it. And I still have a lot of like, I fucking hate y'all so much, (laughs) but I don't want to be part of, because the outright has kind of in a lot of ways is really anti-intellectualism, anti-academia. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's not where I fall at all. I'm not, I, I learned so much (laughs) and I changed my life. I just want it to be accessible to people. Right. And I want academia to critically think about the ways that they're not and the ways that they're hiring is fucked. The ways that they're promoting their, their good kinded, you know, like their good heartedness of admission, uh, all of that. I want them to be critical of all of that. I want, because a lot of progressive spaces, they do walk on eggshells, but it's performative more than anything. And I want it to become less of that by me doing the stuff that I do and talk about. I just yeah. don't want to be misinterpreted as that convert contributing to the conversation around anti-intellectualism because I don't think that that's at all what I'm trying to say. But I think it has been a new conversation that I get wary of like, I don't put me in that. Don't <laughs> don't clap me in that please. That's yeah. not what I'm saying. <laughs> well, and like the alt-right is kind of interesting because they they do have that anti-intellectual current, but then at the same time, they're, they are trying to actively recruit students from college campuses and they are doing their own little college circuit tours to whoever will have them. Mm -hmm. Like at Stanford, there was this, this extreme Islamophobe who was so Islamophobic that the UK banned him from entering the country like the UK, okay, this is not like a bastion of anything like other than colonialism. And Stanford was like, come to us. Yeah, and the Stanford College Republicans were like, amazing, please come speak to our campus. And they did come. And like, I think it's important not to completely see the ground of academia because if we think about it, it's purest form. It's like students who are trying to learn and expand their minds. And like, yeah. 
that can be a really important point of intervention. And I think like higher education, I think is different than K through 12 because it's not mandatory. I mean, I think there's a lot of things with that, like who ends up incentivized to go and why, but still, I think it's just like a more generative space because it is opt-in yeah, and, and like people are kind of, for the most part there because they're willing to think about things from a different perspective. And so I think it is like a really valuable place to intervene. And I mean, your career is so iconic for that reason, because you made a career of talking shit about white people going <laughs> to universities, these like PWIs <laughs> who then pay you a lot of money to say that. <laughs> I'm like, do they even Amazing. know? <laughs> It's the scam of the scams. The scam of the scams. I'm still trying trying to figure out when they're going to stop calling and when they figure (laughs) out like what I'm doing. (laughs) Because at this point, you know, like you've been invited to speak at colleges. It's like departments that are more liberal or like student clubs Mm -hmm. (laughs) that use their funding properly. But it never, like I've never gotten like a, you know, like a, the president of the university wants you to come and do a, a you know, convocation. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm waiting for when they figure that out. <laughs> the higher ups. You, in the book, you made the decision not to italicize Spanish because doing so implies some kind of foreignness. Did you receive pushback on that from any of your editors or anybody in the process? of No. I didn't. And I love that because I wanted to write. So I try to go to get a PhD a few times uh-huh. and I propose, I would try to go UCLA's uh, Latinx cultural, whatever. They have like a whole <laughs> Chicano studies program. Yeah, for I, was like, I was like, no girl, they call it Chicano studies. So, <laughs> oh, well, I try to go no and shade. that was, I propose <laughs> <laughs> um, all the shade, but <laughs> The way that PhD work functions is that you have to sort of, there's a dance. There's a very delicate dance of courting your potential advisor Mm. where you read their work, you look them up, you email them stating like even some quotes you could find that you really, really were passionate about so that they are invested in you and can vouch for you in the admissions process. Yeah. And I did this with this one professor at this UCLA program because he was very big on using social media to enact change, very big on Twitter at the time. And so I'm just like, this is the guy. This is my guy. And so I I proposed basically my intro to him as my dissertation. Like, this is what I want to do. I want to make it accessible. I don't want to italicize Spanish. I'd I like make my whole um, elevator speech based on like things that I've known about him and I've read about him. And his reply was, maybe you shouldn't go into academia then because you have oh. to be willing. <laughs> yeah, you have to be willing to do the dance and it doesn't seem like you have any willingness. So I have discovered that academic okay. spaces had more resistance to uh, that style. But the only pushback I got from my editor in the intro was the use of girl instead of woman because she thought it was infantilizing Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so I was like no (laughs) and this is why not and so I had my list I was like this is a white feminism problem and they can deal with that on their own time but this isn't for white women so we can just not talk about that like we're gonna use girl (laughs) yeah and this is why it's important but no they kind of left me to my own doing and I don't know why still well I think because the thing behind their their requirement of people having a large social media following is for sure a business tactic, but I think it's one that makes sense because what it says is that you have an audience that wants to hear you and your authentic and sincere voice. That's why people have been following you, you know what I mean? And like, that's why, you know, you got noticed from a Latino Rebels caption Yeah, (laughs) because it's kind of like people are following you for your unique voice, regardless of whatever medium it was in. And I'm glad that they kind of know that and are savvy about that and are just like so much of the reaction that I've seen for the stories that you've shared on your Instagram are people being like, this is everything I needed. This is everything I needed that I didn't know I needed. <laughs> this like this was a letter written directly to me, you know, like this. It spoke to people. And I think that is because you were allowed to retain your voice. And I'm happy that they didn't give you pushback on stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, I am too. I kind of wish they had because I've 
you know, like I've read the whole thing, like I told you, and I know where everything I wish she would have got this. <laughs> I like you trusted me too much, <laughs> but I can't complain about it. It's been really, it's been very off, off putting because I'm not used to support and, and like encouragement mm. and somebody believing in me so much that I'm distrusting of it. But also, I know I was like, okay, it's like, ultimately we're back to imposter syndrome now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're like, Cause you're like, it's amazing, but actually like, I hated it. This one part, like my editor trusted me too much. Actually, <laughs> like what? Are you sure? Yeah, <laughs> it probably just works. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. And I, I think whenever I start saying that stuff, I think about one of my mentors in academia. It's, she's a professor at Boston's uh, University, the School of Theology, and she always said, if you ever do a PhD, you need to be with an advisor who's just gonna let you do whatever you want. You have something that's okay. working and you need to be left alone and I think that that's what my editor did essentially that's amazing so in your chapter about imposter syndrome you discuss how a symptom of imposter syndrome is self-sabotaging procrastination just something I definitely experienced. How did you overcome that enough to be able to write this amazing book? I, I knew I had no choice, but to move forward. (laughs) I failure has like not been an option. It's like, I think the oldest daughter syndrome, the oldest daughter of an immigrant family syndrome. (laughs) It was just like, no, you signed this contract. You, this white girl got to return her advance, but that is not a, something that is afforded to you. You buckle right. down, you cry this out, you close the door to your office for 48 hours at a time if you have to, but you will write this book. <laughs> and I just kept telling myself that I was like, you're going to write this book. And I would constantly go to like Amazon's top sellers and look at some of these titles that do, you know, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, they wrote this you can write any you can literally write trash and you'll stand along great company still (laughs) so so keep going forward but it was like it was checking myself like there was a book like why women shouldn't preach there's a book called oh my god that got published so I'm like keep going keep going don't let all the voices that are that you have been conditioned to listen to don't let that stop you you have Mm. got to do this and I just kept doing it and then it was done (laughs) oh my god inspiring uh scary (laughs) (laughs) but good and now in hindsight that it has received it has been received pretty well at first I was like I wrote trash I wrote trash (laughs) trash I cried through oh let's go (laughs) (laughs) so it's good now in hindsight (laughs) I loved your respectability politics chapter can you explain how respectability politics acts as social control yeah. So uh, respectability politics, the way we understand it, it, it is it has been coined by black women. It is a term that mm-hmm. a black woman coined. And to explain the shift in like comportment, tone, dress, everything that people of color, specifically black women do to appease white people. And when I realized all the ways that I had done that, I yeah. was so ready to divest. (laughs) And when I realized how much I started losing, like in the blink of an eye, when I started to divest, I was like, I'm onto something good then. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Scary, scary as fuck. Like that my own peers are rolling their eyes when I speak in class now that my own, like how you would dress and yeah, how I would dress. I started getting more visible tattoos. I kind of wasn't behaving. Like I was saying, I, we, I had a homiletics and liturgy class. That's a requirement for people with an MDiv and it's just a preaching class. And, uh, the professor, I was going through my sexual liberation at this point and I had made my dorm into uh, an altar, like as Mm -hmm. a walking altar. And I talked about, like, he was saying like, there, there's different ways to preach. You don't always have to be speaking to preach. Come on, give me examples of how y'all preach. And I was like, 
<laughs> I preach when I'm having an orgasm that I demanded I have before my partner does. <laughs> so I started saying things that were going to make people uncomfortable, but also it was, it was so real and I was living yeah. it and it was like, you're like, no, that's actually, that's what is true in my life right now. Yeah. And, and people just started to like scoot two chairs away from me. <laughs> just like I said, roll their eyes. And when I started to quote unquote blow up, a lot of those people started to create narratives mm. around why they kept their distance around me to justify like, no, I didn't buy into respectability politics. She was just a bitch. <laughs> and I was, and I'm okay, like, okay, haters. Yeah, we're back to square one, y'all. <laughs> so I I don't even know what the question was, but I wanted to like uh is, yeah, just how respectability politics like actually access social control because I talk a lot about how the prison system is uh, is a system of social control. I mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um respectability politics is like it's kind of, it is that kind of similar carceral policing, except we do it to each other in the everyday world. And I think this is one of those things that perhaps you don't notice until somebody names it. Yeah. Um, Because it's something that I think Black, Indigenous people of color have learned to do pretty early on because of how we're socialized. And instinct like as you say it was kind of like an awakening moment for you because you realized what it was then you thought about it and you're like oh my god like literally how I comport myself how I dress how I speak I have in part subconsciously done in order to make white people feel comfortable yeah and that is social control I mean you're not literally in a cage but it is cage-like in how it controls how you act and how you move Yeah. And I think the breaking point for me, because there was there was like a turning point where maybe my peers thought less of me because of the way that I moved. But my professor, some professors like the allies were creating spaces for me and were like, we love that. I like I was suddenly getting mentors that I that I wasn't like just going out of my way to be like, please please. (laughs) I think you're amazing, (laughs) which is how I started. I was getting mentors from other universities, people who like, were like, I believe women of color who were like, I Mm. believe in what you're doing is so important. Yeah. But then I had this incident of this faculty person who made advances towards me. Oh God! And because I had divested so much from the white gaze and respectability politics, the response was it just like ruined the last few months of my program mm. because I felt like it's a, it was a four-year program, which is really long for a master's. I spent the four, the first two yeah, years just like, like yeah, <laughs> I spent the four, the first two years, just like trying to figure out what the fuck is happening here, getting divorced, like <laughs> getting a handle of like, okay, you're not going to get A's here. Just like accept it. It's okay. It's not who you are. It's the system. It's the people who are in this program who have advances, advantages that you just don't, weren't given access to because of where you come from. Like two years of like trying to make sense of what was happening. Mm -hmm. The last two years, like really stepping into myself and getting support and getting a lot of encouragement. And then the last four months, it just like plummeted. Mm. with this person making advances towards me and then me inadvertently reporting them. And then the lawyer stepped in for title nine stuff. And then it was just like, whenever I went into a room, it was, it wasn't eye roll. It was like, just like whispers because mm. the whole campus knew because the people who were in that space got interviewed. And, you know, I, I, I said things like having an orgasm is how I, you know, preach sometimes. So I had created quote unquote excuses and I had, I was deviant enough that I was the issue. There was no way that this faculty person was to blame. And that's when I was like, okay, lesson learned why this is important. Yeah. (laughs) And why I need to keep doing this. Yeah. That's an amazing response because that is super, super fucked up for you to experience and completely unacceptable for the university's timeline team to have responded in that way and just fuck all them basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I I like, I knew that it was, it was just like, okay, it's, it's time to go. It's good. Yeah. You're graduating and it's exactly. time to, 
just like completely sever these relationships with this university. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I thought was really powerful was you sharing the letter that you wrote to Brad when you first started dating. (laughs) What made you share that letter when it was initially written just for Brad? Because for a few reasons, I had already shared a version of it. Mm. And the response in the comment, I shared it in a Latina publication called Viva La. Mm -hmm. And the comments from Latinas were... I mean, there was like a subreddit that had just the article about it. And the comments in that were like the more, the most comments I had ever had in any article I had ever written. And it was all that I was the issue. Like, why was I with a white person if I wasn't willing to accept them? And like, he was oppressed. Yeah. And like, he was oppressed because, (laughs) no, like he's oppressed by me. I demasculated him. It was a lot of weird, my husband's white. And I would never say those things to him like that. (laughs) And so I was like, again, like when I see an issue, I'm like, okay, this is why this is important. Right. (laughs) And so I knew that, that that's one of the pieces that was going to spark a lot of conversations. And I, I, that's, that's all I do. I want people to talk, yeah. <laughs> talk to each other. Like, don't, don't DM me with your, with your <laughs> anger. Yeah. <laughs> I would never tell Chad that he's white. <laughs> um, no, it was like that. And it said so much about like how we are taught to overvalue whiteness. And yeah, I, so I was saying 100%. and naming things that we needed to be saying and naming louder and in bigger platforms. Yes. So it got put in this book. One of those things that you said that I appreciated that I think needs more airtime in your white fragility chapter is that you say that white women are just as complicit as white men in oppressing people of color. Can you break that down a bit more? Because I think like I've seen some white men who are like, I don't want to call out blah, 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 with white woman because I'm a man and I have like all these patriarchal problems and I just don't think it's appropriate for me to call out a white woman. Mm. <laughs> so can you break down why that's a flawed logic? Oh, oh, I don't even, I feel like it's just white men, white manning. Uh, <laughs> like it's like, like it's a lack of taking responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think sometimes we do ream white women more and just like we do with I think you tweeted about it we like yeah AOC is problematic and really performative but also like you all just love to hate women like just be honest it's it's true because (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. just like sometimes uh, there's a lot of things actually it's so funny I'm someone sent me this mug I have no idea who sent it to me but I'm just I'm like whatever the mug bad. says resistencia or something with AOC on it or resistance. Yeah. I know it's like I kind of would have rather had my face on it. <laughs> I, I, I understand why sure. you think about that. Whoever sent that to me. <laughs> but I think that that's a valid comment. However, yeah. When I decided, when I realized that like men were trash and men are trash, which was a very good shift that I needed as somebody who didn't have female friendships, Mm. overvalued men's opinions, wanted to position myself in relationship to men a lot. Like I didn't have friends. I had boyfriends. I didn't, I didn't like when shit hit the fan, I had nobody because I had made my best friend, my (laughs) ex-husband like, and so I needed that reality check. And then I started to shift my attention to women and female friendships. And that's when I was like, Oh, (laughs) Why women are terrible. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, terrible. okay. Is, yeah. Like my feminism is not inclusive of white women, to be honest, because yeah. they have been the, the worst because they have, they have somehow, when I have all this knowledge and all this language, they have somehow managed to catch me in vulnerable positions and then weaponize that, <laughs> which again, we see white women are emotional terrorists emotional terrorists they have they they have yeah, i said that traumatized me and yeah, i wrote same. about the white women <laughs> that have traumatized me in that chapter because i you know girl power and all this messaging we get told we think we can be safe with them mm-hmm. and we forget that no like mm-hmm. they're still white and they're white first 
Yes, that's it. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you, period. Okay, so the last question I have for you is, why was writing this book, quote, peak brown girl self-preservation? Because I I need more people. (laughs) I I loved that part of the book, by the way. It's like been transformative to find community for me. Like I know I'm okay because of the people that I have surrounded myself with. Mm-hmm. I have made friendships online. You're one of those friendships. I have hey. I have like people <laughs> I trust across the US and beyond. Yeah. And yeah. the more it's like the brown girl army. I'm like, yeah, let, let's do that. <laughs> I I want as many of us on the same side. Uh, with all the nuances, I want as many of us to have all this information because it's going to help us all. Uh, yes. Like n- these accolades won't, these achievements won't, we will keep each other alive when we acknowledge how our humanities are interconnected. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. That is so beautiful. I love that. <laughs> and like, in cause the thing I'm seeing in your book was that you say, I think in the beginning of the intro and then in the last chapter um, that exactly this, that you hope that it reaches the women of color and girls of color who need it because we need each other. And so we all need to be in this place of having this collective knowledge. And as you said, with being together with all these nuances and it's so inspiring and it's so true. It, it is how we will survive. And I just appreciate you continuing in the tradition of like Audrey Lord and Gloria Zaldua talking about writing as a means of self-preservation, as a means of survival. And I think I didn't always understand that when I first read that, but I think reading your book really clarified how that can be true, that um, writing can be a way that we can save ourselves and and preserve each other yeah and like survive it all but because I don't have a career if I don't start saying these things and my book is genre bending it doesn't have a place that it fits Mm -hmm. so if I've created a new genre where we can exist in these storytelling ways as pedagogy storytelling as pedagogy then I'm like let's go I want to hear all y'all's stories yes exactly oh my god that's amazing so yeah, those are all the questions I had. Was there anything that I missed? No, that was awesome. <laughs> and as usual, it's like you get like you get real deep. <laughs> yes. And I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, I hope you have a great rest of your day. You and too. Yes. <laughs> I hope you continue like actually enjoying the success of your book. <laughs> I know. I'm getting better. <laughs> okay, good. I'm trying. Right. Bye. Bye.